Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College. In the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. The Gustavus mission statement speaks of educating students in a framework that is, quote, international in perspective. That means not only incorporating global perspectives into the curriculum, as the college's new general education challenge curriculum does, but also offering a host of opportunities for international travel and learning. Among the latter is the Economics and Management Department's unique and exciting January term Hong Kong travel program, generously sponsored and led by my guest today, alumnus Charlie Kelly. Charlie graduated Gustavus in 1975 with a degree in economics, accounting, and business, and went on to a successful career in the financial industry, first with Norwest, now Wells Fargo, and then with Compass Capital, which he founded in 1988 and where he is senior portfolio manager. A chartered financial analyst, Charlie serves on the investment committees of Gustavus and Project for Pride in Living, a Minneapolis nonprofit. Since hearing two students speak about their experiences, participants in the Hong Kong program, I knew I wanted to speak with Charlie for the podcast, and I'm delighted he can join me. Welcome, Charlie. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much. So, um, as I often say in the podcast, I'm a historian and I'm interested in origins, and maybe we can start at the beginning and work our way uh, toward the present. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Well, I grew up in uh, Minnetonka. I went to Minnetonka High School. Uh, we graduated from, I graduated from Minnetonka in 1971 and uh, spent my whole life in the Minnetonka, uh, Lake Minnetonka area. And then what were you, were your parents both working when you were growing up? Or? Uh, my father uh, was a World War II veteran. Uh, he never graduated from college. He ended up in the insurance business. Uh, my mother didn't work at the time, but she she graduated from Vassar College with a chemical engineering degree. Wow, and, no kidding. Huh? And ended up in San Francisco during World War II, working for DuPont and during the day and running ambulances back and forth from Navy ships to the hospitals at night. Wow. Okay. So I'm thinking I need to interview your mom. Is your mom still living or not? No, she's, she's passed away. She right. talks fondly about uh, VJ Day in San Francisco uh, during the war. And she has, a, I think, a wonderful time of her life. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. The um, especially at that era, I mean, there weren't well, even though Vassar was a women's college still, and to be in science too. The um, we're the same vintage, you know, seventy five as we know. We're the same age, a good year to graduate, I guess. Um, but but um, like you, my dad was, or like your dad, my dad was a World War II vet, didn't go to college, grew up in Chicago, and then um, became a hairdresser. That's what he did for his yeah. career. So, and my mom as well. Then went to work with him. But his dad had been a barber, so kind of a familiar, familiar story. Why, um, were you the Were you the first to go to college in your family? Or your mom? No, your mom went. You just said your mom went. That's right. Yeah. My brother was the first of the Kelly line to go to college and graduate. Okay. And my then, father did go for a few years before the war, but he got everyone enlisted, and yeah, it was hard to get back into it after what you saw in the South Pacific. Sure. 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh wow, he was. Yeah, my dad was in in, in the European theater. What about um, why Gustavus? Was that already on your radar in high school? I mean, was that a school you had connections to, or? Well, it was interesting. I was uh, I played hockey at at uh, Minnetonka. I was also to go to the University of Minnesota um, to try to play hockey there. And my father came home in August of uh, that summer between high school and college and said, you know, you should think about this small college called Gustavus. And so my father and I drove down to Gustavus and the hockey coach down there was a fellow named Donnie Roberts. Which, oh, of course, yeah. a legend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he had started the program in 1968 and he's obviously the hockey rinks named after him. Uh, I met with him and I went and uh, applied. And two days later, I was accepted. And so did you wind up playing hockey all four years? Yeah. And, you know, that was a very interesting part of my career, Gustavus. You know, when I was a freshman, I made the varsity. There's three freshmen on the varsity team, but we had 18 seniors. And we won the MIC that year. And the following year, we had 14 graduates on the team. So wow. there were only six of us coming back, including <laughs> our, our, we, we didn't have a goalie. <laughs> and uh, it's all about chemistry and no stars on the team. And I think that's the last time a team in the MIC went undefeated. We, want, we, we rolled the table. We won every MIC game. Wow, and that's the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletics Association. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And Donnie, right? Yeah, Donnie Roberts. Well, he's a legend. Um, <laughs> the um, so why econ? Why that? What drew you to that? Was it because of your dad's work or your mom's work or or what? what why? When, when did you know? When did you know that's what you wanted to major in? I think it was my grandfather and my my dad were both in the insurance business and heavily involved in the insurance business and my exposure to their friends. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what pushed me more in the business and econ. But, uh, you know, you talk about professors like Gustavus, there is a professor, Claire McCrosty. Oh, of course. Yeah, sure. Uh, I had him for one-on-one econ in the auditorium and it changed everything. And Kyle Montague, uh, yep. I had for business law, and these guys were both ruthless. <laughs> and if you didn't come to class prepared, they told you. And uh, so it was one of those fearful, but you learned a great deal. <laughs> yeah. Learning was amazing. Both of those guys were, uh, both of those professors, now sadly deceased, both of them were at um, Gustavus when I arrived in 86. Yeah. And um, yeah, even I was a little intimidated. I remember Kyle, what they call him, Boomer, Boomer Montague? Yeah, yeah Kyle Montague. Yeah, he had, he had been, he had retired. And I'm teaching, you know, I'm in the middle of teaching the U.S. survey course as a young, you know, Rube new, new to the college. And I see this guy walk into the back of the room, um, older gentleman, and, you know, sit down. I think, what's, what's going on? on here. It's just Kyle Montague who decided to drop in on my class and I guess yeah. check check up on me. Um, it's funny when, when, when alums um, our age or a little younger talk about Gustavus and professors then, it makes me a little um, a little envious because I have to say today it seems to be much more about um, 
you know, and I, I understand it's important with self-esteem building, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of joke if, if I were to behave the way McCrosty and Montague behaved, I'd probably be called into the dean's office. Out of <laughs> you know, <laughs> But there's something to be said for it, right? You learn. I mean. Oh, absolutely. I, I had an English teacher at Minnetonka was the same way. Uh, yeah. There was a little bit of fear when you went into his room every day. And uh, but we, when you came out, you're a better person. Yeah, I had I had the same kind of experience in high school. I thought I was in one course. I thought I was such hot stuff, and I wrote this paper, and I thought it was great. And it was an econ. I think it was an econ course. It came back a D. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, okay, that was a wake up call. And my yeah. wife tells the story of I think it was at Bard College. One of her professors writing on one of her papers says, "English, your native language." You know, you can't <laughs> can't imagine doing that today. Yeah, Boomer. Kyle used to come out to our hockey games. He'd go to our hockey games and he'd sit out in the snowbanks and watch us. It was wonderful. He was giving to us as much as we were trying to give to him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, um, and that's still true at Gustavus. I mean, that's one thing I love about I didn't attend a liberal arts college the way my wife did, but I do love that about a small liberal arts college where the you know it's much more than just we see students in the classroom now we see them in all kinds of venues um including you know athletics the um other thing i wanted to talk about you mentioned snow and you we were you were telling me before we started recording about uh, a great winter storm and um you want to tell us that story that you were was it 70 what year was that the great i'm not storm? sure it was Sometime 73 or 74 okay like so that. yeah tell us a little bit about what happened well you have to realize that uh, the college campus environment was being shaped by what probably happened from 68 to 1970 with the civil rights movement in Vietnam. Right. It was a very liberal time on campus. Uh, we had a blizzard and the whole parking lot between what we called co-ed and the mall, all the cars were just covered with snow and you couldn't see a single car in there. <laughs> and the campus was closed down for, I think, two or three days and I think the, the food service was closed. And so we always made our way downtown and we had taken some trays from the cafeteria and slid down the hill to St. Peter. And <laughs> I think we bought a couple of kegs of beer and put them back on the trays and pushed them back up the hill. And I think we were fine until it snow melted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nourishment of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> we had a lot, a lot of fun. That's a great story because... Um, you know, today, not just Gustavus, college campuses are so concerned about alcohol consumption for good for good reason. But mm -hmm. um, I was mentioning to you again before we started recording when I, my wife and I, Kate and I came to Gustavus in the history department. We were, we'd come from Boston University. Um, and, you know, we came in 78. And I, I mean, I'll never forget that what was served at all the meals you had, you know, you could drink water. Or you could have your choice of whole or skim milk. <laughs> I, thought this right. is, I was used to going to, even as a graduate student, I was used to going to faculty dinners where wine was served. And uh, at least wine is now served at, 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 at dinners. Um, so we've, sure. we've come along. Um, the question I have for you, too, is, I mean, it's one thing to know what you want to major in. Did that major lead logically to you? going into the financial sector? I mean, is that, is that, again, is that something you knew you wanted to do, let's say, by your senior year? Or how did you wind up getting, getting into that area of work? 
Well, that's interesting. I remember taking classes on monetary and fiscal policy as part of the economic degree. And I loved to understand how the Federal Reserve worked and mm-hmm. government worked and those how the two policies intertwine and are separate to some respect. So the spring of my senior year, I wrote letters to all the major bank corporations in downtown uh, Minneapolis. Huh. And uh, I got one back uh, from First Bank Systems. Well, at that time, it was First Bank. Um, and they said, come in for an interview. So I went in for an interview that spring, and I was fortunate enough to be hired. Well, what were you doing at that? Let's see, so was that, straight, that was straight out of college, right? I mean, straight out of Gustavus? Yeah, so I'm, what, uh, 21 or 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember my father taking me to buy my first suit ever, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where he used to buy his suits. Yeah. And I was in what they called the dealer finance area of First Bank. And the dealer finance area did two things. One, they did the uh, inventory uh, loaning to car dealerships to have the cars on their lots. And two, they collected on loans. Oh, yeah. And so a good part of our job, and this is what probably makes a lot of people laugh, is that I repossess cars. <laughs> you were you're a repo man or were I did was that, a repo man. You I mean bet. what did that literally mean? I mean, did you did you didn't go out and do it, did you? Or did you just do you did the paperwork or were you actually going out and seizing the cars? Uh we had people internally of the bank that would do the paperwork. I was outside. Wow. Uh, and I would go and knock on people's door and say, I need five hundred in cash or your car keys. Wow. And there are some nights I spent in back of police cars, even though we have total right to the car. Uh, the police yeah. officers would say, not on my watch, you're taking this car. And <laughs> so, you know, there was another Gustavus grad working. He was a couple of years ahead of me, Rob Lanier. I don't know if you run across Rob. Uh, he was mm-hmm. in the same group. He had North Minneapolis. I had South Minneapolis and all of St. Paul. And typically, we play golf during the day and steal cars at night. <laughs> what do you? I mean, gosh, I don't know. How did that shape you? Do you think if it did? I mean, what 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 lessons did you take from that experience, if any? Aside that, maybe you didn't want to do that for the rest of your life. I assume. I think it was probably the most informative part of my career by huh. far. Those six huh. months. Here I was, a kid that just came from a liberal arts college, a white kid. And uh, here I am out now knocking on doors, typically in the lower social economic end of the scale. And you have to also realize in 1975, it was the oil embargo, 73, 74, 75. Right. So the economy was in terrible shape. And the amount of people that were uh, loaned out and couldn't pay for their cars, there were a great deal of them. And so yeah. here I was, a white, young white male, uh, knocking on doors, asking for cash, cash, not a check, cash. Right. And these people had no idea if, if they had 50 bucks in their house, <laughs> that was a lot. Right. Uh, instead of 500. And uh, they weren't going to give up their car. So it was, it's, it was an interesting time. And I learned how to read people. I learned how to introduce myself to people I didn't know in a very tense situation. 
Uh, I learned how to control my personal emotions because uh, I knew it, they were in a very difficult spot. The bank had put their backs to the wall uh, on their transportation needs. And so I, uh, I grew up pretty quick. That's a great story and a great point about how how formative that was. It would be easy you know, someone might think you'd say, oh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And maybe you couldn't wait. But, but you know, that you said that was one of, if not the most formative experiences. And everything you just articulated uh, reveals that. And it, just thinking here as a teacher, it's one of the things I love to hear, stories like that. Because it's so often the unexpected, right? What we don't set out to do. You know, you didn't set out to do that. You didn't set out no. to do that so that it would be a formative experience that would, you know, afford you lessons probably that stay with you to this day. Uh, so that is a great, that's a, that's a great and important story and a lesson in and of itself. And so from there you went into, then it was called Norwest, right? Yes. Um, I, you know, I had sent a letter to Norwest and uh, they had kept it. I was surprised. <laughs> And they contacted me in uh, October of that of 1975. So I'd been at First Bank for five months and said, we have an opening in the tax department within the trust department of the Northwestern National Bank of Minneapolis. And so I'm going, well, winter's coming. Do I want to be outside taking inventory of cars <laughs> on dealers' lots? and trying to repossess cars and snow. Uh, I didn't think I would want to do that. So uh, I accepted the job at the trust department in the tax area of Northwestern National Bank. And then again, you were probably, I don't know, you were in your mid mid to late 20s maybe at that point, still young. Uh, 23. 23, probably. yeah, wow. Not married. Um, Oh, you did, you did get married or you weren't married? Not uh, One year later. Uh, one year later. 24, I was married. To Emily, who also is a Gustavus alum, graduated the same year you did and who had a career, long career as a um, an editor for Learner Publishing here in Minneapolis. Yeah, the, um, I want to interview her too at some point. The So what, I mean... What do you, how do you, what do you do? You're, you're that young. You're now working for Norwest. And I mean, how much of the learning just is sort of by the seat of your pants? I mean, did they have things like mentoring programs, all of that, that we take for granted today? Oh, there was no mentoring at all. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> you had to gravitate to the people that you thought could help you. And, uh, you know, if I look back on my investment career in financial service. I couldn't have started in a better area than tax. Hmm. Uh, people want to know how much money can I spend and how much tax am I going to pay? <laughs> you know? Right. So, the two basics, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, during tax season, we were probably working 80 hours a week uh, doing uh, tax returns for trusts, for individuals, uh, estate tax returns, gift tax returns, uh, iron ore royalty reports, all sorts of tax forms. And uh, I learned how to read wills. I learned how to read trust documents. And I still use those skills today because I can read them and look for certain words. And if I don't see them, I, I go, well, you should go see your lawyer quick. And you got to mm. get this straightened out. Uh, tax law has changed considerably. But sure. the general concepts, the concepts of taxation <laughs> have not changed. Right. And those con concepts help me 
immensely today because uh, we, lo we look at after-tax returns uh, and how do you calculate after-tax returns and, and after-tax returns differ from state to state. Right. Yeah, you're reminding me that, um, making me think of my father-in-law now deceased, who my, my wife's dad was a lawyer, uh, but but a tax lawyer. That's what he did in New right. York City for a firm and, um, you know, just did that for, you know, individuals and, and, and groups, uh, mostly, mostly corporations, I think. So the other thing you were doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were really, you were also managing nonprofit, local nonprofit portfolios. Is that right? Not at that time. What happened, the reason why I got in the nonprofits, I, mostly at the bank, is that I became an expert on doing tax returns for unit trusts, annuity trusts, pooled income funds. And I did all the work from the University of Minnesota Foundation. Uh -huh. There's Judy Kirk, who was over there running the University of Minnesota Foundation. So we got heavily involved with the tax strategy as long with the investment strategy within the specific types of trusts. And uh, I even had a couple for Gustavus, some unit trusts that created by some mm -hmm. alumni that I did the tax work and the investment management. Well, that morphed into working in a group within the trust department that just managed endowment funds for institutions. So they moved me into, and this is how I got into investments. I got in through the back door, huh. through the tax side. Huh. So I ended up with a group that we managed St. Thomas's endowment, McAllister's endowments, the Orchestra Hall, Dunwoody, wow. Lakewood Cemetery. So we had a group of probably, there's three of us, and we probably had about 100 clients that we were managing their endowment funds. Wow, what an experience. I mean, geez. And so I mean, what was beautiful about this was it you go to these meetings and you're meeting with the finance committee with St. Thomas or McAllister or Orchestral Association. And they're all the well-known people of the Twin Cities. Sure. And here I am, 27 years old, and I'm at the table with these people. And I guess the best story I have here is uh, I was given the uh, Boys and Girls Club endowment to manage. It was not very big. I think it was a million or two million bucks. They only had two people on their investment committee, and one was Carl Polat, huh. and the other was Raymond Plank. And Raymond Plank uh, started Apache Oil, which became, I think, about a $45 billion company. Wow. Uh, Raymond, so I go walk into Carl Polat's office. I'm 26 years old, and I'm going, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I used a different word, but <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Mr. Plank and Mr. Pollad were sitting at the table, and I had the, my endowment. I had my investment returns, and uh, they looked right at me. They didn't ask me one question about performance of the huh. account. They wanted to know my vision for the future and how I was positioning the portfolio to capture that vision. Wow. It changed my whole life from the investment point of view. What a lesson. It, yeah, you go, you go in thinking, well, they're gonna ask about performance. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. They, these people weren't hindsight people. These people were foresight people. 
Yeah. The, the reason why they got to where they are is their vision of the future and willing to take the risk to bet on their vision. And Paul Ad was it was he owned the twins at that point too? Is that, was, yeah, but he made all his money in banking. And banking, yeah, that's what I thought. So uh, you know, you, you're you're raising a question, a question I want to ask you, and this maybe is the the point, the place to do it, the time to do it. You're an entrepreneur, really, because after this, we'll get into this. You found, as I mentioned in the intro, you found Compass, your own uh, investment company or finance company. But but what 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 do you think it takes to be an entrepreneur? Is that one of the things for sure? That vision, that looking forward. What else? I don't think there's any doubt about it. That it's all of how you see the future. Um, and I also talk about two other attributions, and one is that you have to be an optimist. Hmm. If, if you're not an optimist, <laughs> you're not going to make it. That's a good point. And the other part of it, you have to be a capitalist. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You have to believe that you can make money doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, be, yeah, I come to you to I come to you for financial advice, and you tell me, "Well, you're not going to make any money." So, yeah, no. Right. I mean, right. So, an entrepreneur has to be an optimist, a capitalist, and a risk taker. Right. And he's got to have some vision. Uh, when I started my company in 1988. I remember coming in with my uh, three other partners and the first day we looked at each other and said, what did we just do? Quit our <laughs> jobs. To start. We didn't have a single client. <laughs> and you're going, well, you better get going. You better start the hustle. Awesome, and, right. And away you go. And yeah. I, um, I sometimes wonder, my, my dad was, was a hairdresser. Um, worked for a company here in Minneapolis for a time, big company then called Maxims, M-A-X-I-M-S, located in the Fauché Tower. They had salons and in department stores like Carson Peary Scott. And but my dad also uh, was an entrepreneur who, who who established a lot of his own salons over the years. And um, yeah, it's funny that that point about optimism is really important. I think, and something I remind myself even myself even now in the middle of you know if I'm feeling sort of down about the the pandemic. Uh, at times, but um, the, the the ability to just be focused on the future and be optimistic, and that was kind of hard in my dad's case because he was also Greek, and there was there was no yeah. you know fear of fear of tragedy yeah. and something. Yeah. But right. but I think that's a really important point. And then studying, you know, the historian, you know, studying reading about, and I can't say I study, but reading about nineteenth century self made men, so called self made men, and women sometimes. I mean the the way they would, um, you know, they might rise and fall and fail and start over. And that, I think that, that, that optimism is really, really important. The, um, I'm curious. So you, you, you started compass in 98. Why let's back up a little bit. Why, why did you leave? Uh, what was then? I guess, Wells Fargo. Well, I left Wells Fargo in 1988 and I was 35 years old. Uh, I was married. My kids were five and three. My wife was working, and I think my whole wife's salary was going to daycare. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's probably the same true today. I, I understand daycare is pretty hard. But, you know, it was the structure of an old bank trust department where, where you had a chief investment officer. They really didn't listen to the younger people uh, that are within the investment function within the bank. 
and also the rigidity of it all. My kids were, I wanted to be involved in their lives. If you bring kids into the world, I'm a true believer, you should be heavily involved with their lives to shape who they are. I know my parents were. Um, so I wanted to coach, you know, Little League baseball, football, swim lessons, golf, hockey, and so forth. And I just remember going up to my boss's secretary and saying, I have to leave at three o'clock to go coach. And she would say, well, that cost you a half a day's vacation or a day's vacation. And I'm just going to look at her and I'm going, are you kidding me? Yeah. So the, it was really the bureaucracy of it all and the, the loss of independence and what was important in life. And I was willing to risk everything, including my life savings and getting the business started to see if I could do it. Uh, I guess my, I believed in myself. My self-esteem must have been high enough that said, if it fails, I'll be able to get a job somewhere. Right. I, it, but it it didn't fail, so I, I didn't no, have to worry about that. Far <laughs> from it. And, and yeah. I think that, that point about self-esteem or confidence is also another ingredient. I mean, it's related, obviously, to the optimism but um, and the risk-taking, for sure, obviously. Did, so were your... Um, did you have founding partners then? Were they were they also from Wells? Were they leaving you from there or le- joining you from there? I mean, three of us all resigned on one day. Yeah, and uh, they weren't happy with that. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's turning the blind eye. You know, they should have realized something. I mean, <laughs> the young people that are eager that want to move ahead. And, right. Uh, yeah. You better keep them on track, or they're gonna they're gonna go. And I don't exactly. think there's any difference today. I mean, it's the same no, thing today. No, even I think even in, even in academe in its own way. What about um? What, what so had you discussed this with uh, with Emily beforehand, and she was supportive? I assume. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. as you know, being married, it's a it's a partnership, and it's a very tight partnership. And that's right. Things are discussed and decided on uh, mutually. <laughs> That's right. No, I, I mean, that is marriage. Um, my, my wife and I, sometimes, we sometimes call each other pal or partner, even it's true. Yeah, yeah. So, um, why, why did you call it compass? <laughs> that was really an interesting question. So we're, we're trying to get together all the three of us, four of us together. And we're down in the basement of my, my partner's house and we had a beer or two and we're trying to come up with a name. And a beer bottle fell over on the table and spun around. <laughs> and we're going, God, how about Compass? Where we can help people find the right direction where they want to go. We can help navigate them through the financial markets and through what their needs might be and through the risk and returns and, and also educate them. So that's how it started. That's a, a great beer, story. beer bottle falling over yeah. the table. I'm just thinking beer, beer figures in your life in some important ways, maybe, especially there. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, so, I mean, are we talking about just a, just a little bit about the company and, and, and its mission? You, I assume you're managing like, what is it a billion or more than a billion? I mean, I can't imagine how much. Well, I think we're 1.7, 1.8 billion. Okay. Uh, and is it, is it mostly, um, or is it a mix of individuals and organizations? How does it work? I would suspect that, well, I know that the majority of our clients are individual, but the majority of our money is institutional. Institutional, okay. Institutional money are just bigger pots of money. Yeah. 
than what individuals have. Okay. So we yeah. have about 14 employees. 14, wow. The, um, what, I mean, you know, this is a huge sector, right? A, a huge industry. What are, what do you think makes Compass distinctive? What makes it stand out in, in your mind from other similar firms? Well, it's, that's quite interesting. It's really changed since 1988. You know, in 1988, most investment management firms bought and sold individual stocks. Today, registered investment advisors, which we are, use mutual funds or uh, ETFs. Well, we have stayed with individual stocks. So we have been managing our investment style the same way for 32 years. Wow. And, uh, nothing has changed at all in regards to it. Um, and so what's unique today is that there are hardly any investment managers out there that buy individual stocks and follow individual stocks. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that I'm a uh, chartered financial analyst. That's a CFA. It's a three-year program. Uh, you take six-hour tests uh, once a year. And uh, I think the pass rate first year level is like 30%. And I think the second year level might be 60 and the third year level might be about 52% or something like that. I mean, it's really, it's really a rigorous process. In fact, my son who worked on Wall Street um, for nine years said that's the gold standard is the CFA program instead of a uh, master's in business. Huh. Um, so with the CFA program, you learn how to analyze stocks and the attributions of stocks and how their attributions might be fit together with different types of other stocks to create a portfolio. So that's what's unique of what we're doing for. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not, I did not know, um, know that about Compass. Um, and you're right. I mean, when I think about, you know, yeah, you think about, for, well, I'm thinking about firms, big firms like Fidelity, but even, even not so big firms, right? They're managing, well, I don't know what it's called. They're just managing funds, right? Mutual funds. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Well, that's I, interesting. I, I think what you have to understand, Wall Street is not there to make the individual investor wealthy. Wall Street's there to make themselves wealthy. And so whatever they can sell to the individual and they can make money on might not be in your best interest. And this is the whole fiduciary standard that we're trying to get to. And the right. SEC has been working on it, is that who comes first? And uh, in our mind, it's always been the client comes first. You know, we are a fiduciary. Registered investment advisor is a fiduciary under the SEC eyes. Uh, broker dealers, in some regards, aren't. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's, and that's fairly recent, right? That uh, is it a law now or, or, or a ruling? Like, uh, this, for the SEC, it's some regulation, but I, we've always been under the fiduciary because the bank trust departments are under control of the currency, and they are considered a fiduciary. So okay. you're always working in the best interest of your client. Right. I have learned uh, in, in looking for a financial analyst that to, to make sure they're not making money off you, that that's not the primary goal. Um, and well, that's we try to make money. You want to make right. money, but you, right? But, but you also want to serve your client's interests. At the same that's time. right. So yeah. our, our 
fees are tied to the market value of their portfolio. So if their market value goes up, our fees go up. If our value goes down, our fees go down. Right. And that's, I guess, that's, yeah, I was thinking, I, was, I couldn't remember the phrase, the fee only. That's what, that's yeah. what I feel. Yeah. 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 So it's amazing. Yeah. You started that in 19. So the company is 30, what, about 30? Two years old. Two years old. Yeah. The, um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the Hong Kong program, which is just yeah. Fantastic. So I know when it was a couple of years ago, I heard these two, you were there too. I didn't get a chance to speak with you, but I was invited to a dinner um, uh, by the chair of the economics management department and, and, and enjoyed so much listening to the two students who had traveled with you and maybe Emily as well, I think. Yeah, two women students who had traveled mm-hmm. with you to Hong Kong. So tell us a little bit about the origins of the, of the program. What, what led you to, to sponsor it? Well, it, it, you know, Gustavus, as like every institution, always goes back to their alumni for some fundraising. Right. And so I had been helping. I think I made a donation to the football, new football stadium and made a donation to the renovation, the Roberts Hockey Rank. And, Thank you. But, uh, you know, a lot of the money that I gave, even though I'm on the investment committee now, kind of goes out and floats away. It just gets put somewhere. Sure. And I felt, well, I'm not seeing a return. You know, I'm, you know, I'm in the investment business. I want to re- see a return on my assets. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, the two Cathy's at the school. Um, oh, Kathy Tunheim and Kathy Lundin, right? And, right. Yep. I approached them at, I think it was a Swedish Institute in Minneapolis. I got invited to a program. And I suggested to them, because I had been to Hong Kong two or three other times, and uh, two years before that, I'd taken my whole family to Hong Kong. And my my son worked on Wall Street, so he set up meetings with his connections in Hong Kong, Hmm. uh, venture capitalists and so forth. And we went and would speak to these people for about an hour, and God, I just loved it. And so I thought about it, gosh, how could it be great if I took two kids from Gustavus here every year and we set up meetings with, you know, property management, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, uh, et cetera, and expose them to the world. And uh, so I approached the two Cathy's and they got excited about it. And then we ran into the administration. (laughs) 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 Well, as far as I realized, that they had never allowed a non-professor to take kids overseas, right. maybe even out of the state of Minnesota. I don't even know that. But, and so we we started working through it. And they did a background check with, I don't know who they hired to do a background check and who I was. And I must have passed, and we finally got the okay. And so, they look at your Jeep. They look at your grade point, probably. That wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's another whole correlation. It'd be interesting to correlate grade points to life. <laughs> some point. yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, be. So uh, I didn't want to be involved at all in picking the two kids out because um, I didn't know the kids from Adam. Right. Sure. And Shane, yeah. Shane in the economics department. Took it upon himself. Yeah, uh, took it upon himself to put together a little application. 
And so the first year I said, well, I'll take a couple boys this year. And Kathy and Kathy kind of raised their eyes and said, I'll take two women next year and we'll just <laughs> rotate back and forth. And so I took the two boys over there and uh, it was phenomenal. I mean, most of the kids that I've taken, I've taken 12 kids over there now, six different trips. Most of them haven't even been outside the United States. Right. And uh, first of all, we typically fly out of Chicago, Hong Kong nonstop, and that's, I don't know, 17 hours in the air. And uh, you take off the light, the sun goes down, the sun come back, comes back up, and the sun goes down. <laughs> as you're coming over Siberia, down into Hong Kong, through China. And then we land at seven o'clock at night in, in Hong Kong, and <clears throat> we take a, um, a hotel vehicle from the airport in the downtown Hong Kong. And all you have to do is watch their eyes. Yeah, I, just, uh, I was just thinking that, literally just thinking that. And because the IDS, which is at 52 stories, that's a small building. <laughs> and uh, I would suspect there's hundreds of buildings in Hong Kong, 60 to 80 stories. Uh, and mostly they're all apartment buildings. So it, it, it just uh, fills my heart to watch these kids. And we get to a point at the end that uh, they can navigate the subways. I tell them to, at night, I go to bed early. Even you guys are all old enough. You can go out on the town. I don't care. But just stay together. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to watch them grow up. I mean, to be able to navigate the subway system in Hong Kong is just, you know, right. JFK or O'Hare is confusing. Well, you get yeah. down underground and the city of Hong Kong just expands by a lot. Underground. Yeah, it's, it's so true what you're saying about um, <clears throat> the growth. I mean, the rapid growth. How long are you there for days or weeks or how long are you there? We're usually there for about six, seven days. Okay. Yeah. And I know they do, um, do they sort of shadow you in the fall before the trip or they, they come to your well, office? What I do is I typically meet once a month with them starting in September Okay. Uh, to introduce myself. Uh, I have a book, The History of Hong Kong, that I give to each one of them. Uh, hopefully they read it. I don't know if they do or not, but <clears throat> hopefully they do. Hong Kong has some fascinating history with the British and the Opium Wars, the two Opium Wars that occurred right. in China. And so understanding that culture uh, and why Hong Kong is there, and up to 1999, it was part of uh, the British Empire and the turnover. And boy, the last two years have been very interesting in Hong Kong. Yeah, no kidding. The democracy movement. The, um, I, I, typically, I typically get together once a year with all my alumni students. And uh, I just email them. It's usually between Christmas and uh, New Year's at our house. We just have a party. And it's amazing how many of them are getting married. <laughs> uh, some of them are having kids. Uh, and it's fun to watch them and how they progress in their jobs and their careers. As yeah, well. well, you're 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 enjoying one of the great rewards of teaching. That's what that is. I and mean, there's nothing I 
I shouldn't say nothing, but there's very little I love more as a professor than getting together with alums. Um, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to watch them grow during their four years at Gustavus, but then to also see them growing and, you know, just blossoming in all kinds of interesting ways after Gustavus is, is really a pleasure. I think what you're saying about uh, the subway, just for example, is so important. The growth, the confidence. I'm thinking of, for me, it was going to Mexico as an undergraduate, a junior with my then uh girlfriend who was fluent in Spanish, but that was absolutely transformative for me. We were we were studying, so we were around people who spoke English, but we were also, you know, for people from the U.S., but we were also uh, in a really small town. I fell in love with Mexico. This was in central Mexico, and my time in Mexico City, oh my God, I mean, that just reinforced all my love for, for cities. That was the first time I realized in my life, I was probably 20, 21, man, 20 years old, where I was alone, you know, for an extended period of time in a city, in a major world city. And just, God, I loved it. I loved every part of it. And I think that, um, you know, thinking about the first time I navigated the subway in New York City, wow, I'm, you know, this is amazing. I'm so proud of myself. But beyond that, what, what, what do you do with the students in Hong Kong? I mean, they, these students, I could see it in their eyes when they were making, in their voices, when they were, and certainly the photos, making their presentation uh, about the trip. Tell us a little bit about what, what, they do during the day? Well, I think more important than um, meeting all the people that we meet was our interaction, uh, just the three of us each day. Mm-hmm. I'm the first adult in their life, the way I look at it, that doesn't have any authority over them. Mm-hmm. I'm not their parent. I'm not a high school teacher or a coach. I'm not their pastor. And I'm not their professor at Gustavus, but I'm this adult. And I have been flabbergasted by some of the questions they ask me. And I think they ask these questions because I'm no threat to them. I, I don't have any control any, over any outcomes in their lives. So sitting around having a beer at night, uh, the questions that are asked uh, about the future, what to expect in relationships between different sexes, it's, it's just, you just sit there and you're going to shake your head and that's it. You know, <laughs> they, 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 they're afraid to ask some of these questions of their parents or these professors or right. And yet they yeah. just... Bam, they open up. <laughs> yeah, that must be. So can you say a little bit more about some of the, without uh, violating anyone's privacy, some of the, some yeah. of the kinds of questions they ask? It, the, the relationships between uh, male and female are a big topic. <laughs> Do and, they ask about the work world too or not? Yeah, and, the, and how that interaction between male and female works in the workplace. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Huh. It, it, it's, it's, uh, and th- th- they're so focused on trying to get a job. Right. I worry about that sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, yeah. Were you, were you that way? I was not that way. I have to, I mean, I was a history major. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, but were you, were you, do you remember, were you that focused on, I need a job. I'm going well, to college. I just remember when my father told me, when you graduated from Gustavus, the water's turned off. 
<laughs> I knew what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> you, were fo- you were focused on it. But I do, I worry about it too, in all seriousness. I am. Um, you're reminded, my dad, my dad knew I was going to graduate school. Uh, and sort of said, well, you've got, I've got, I've got a five-year plan for you. You got five years. And it took, I took a little longer, but he's still, he was still supportive. But I do worry about that also. I mean, a lot of us do as professors, not just at Gustavus, where the students feel, young people, they feel they have to have it, or their parents feel that their kids have to have it all figured out from that's right. day one. And that's just not true, right? No, even no. in your case, even, even though you maybe you knew what you were going to major in early on, you didn't know you were going to do, you know, repo work for a time and then that was going right. to be such a formative. You didn't know you were going to be developing a program in Hong Kong. So, I mean, just I always tell the students, just be open, open, not just open minded, but open to opportunities. And it's OK if you don't have everything all figured out, even as a senior, it's OK. That's a hard it's a hard message to sell. I, I understand. I, um, I work on that message as well. Um, yeah. And one of the things that we work on when we're in Hong Kong for an investment person, I think one of the greatest skills is the art of observation, observing what's happening around you. You just made my day. And like when I go into a city, whether or not it's in Europe or Asia, uh, how many cranes do I see in the sky? How many buildings are being built? What kind of cars are being driven? What are people wearing? What kind of shoes? All these things I have developed my ability to observe. And so I try to get the students, we come back, excuse me, every day and sit down and I said, what'd you see? Yeah. Just tell me what you saw. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And developing that skill of observing, no matter what it is in life, uh, whether or not you're a duck hunter, and you're seeing all the ducks go down that way, and you're going, why are they going down there and trying to figure it out? Uh, it's going to last you a lifetime. Uh, I mean, you literally, you literally just made my day. I'm not kidding. Um, because one of, the, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, I suppose if you're hiring someone for your company, for Compass, I mean, having a background in economics is important. But, you know... Again, sometimes students think I must have this major to do this. And what you're describing as an incredibly important part of what it means to be not just a learner, but in your in your particular line of work, observation, um, that doesn't come from any one major, right? That comes oh. from that can come from your educational experience in your own upbringing, and I think that is so important. When my wife and I took years ago, we took Gustavus students to England. And it's one of the things we stress to just walk around the city with your eyes and ears open. Absolutely. Right? Observe. Yeah. Incredibly I, important. You have to understand the different cultures of the world, the interconnect of these different cultures. Uh, you know, we meet with a woman in Hong Kong. She's French. She's my age. She is your typical French woman, just a wonderful, bright woman. But she's a money manager, and she works for a Boston money management company running a Chinese stock mutual fund. (laughs) And I'm going, wait a minute. You work for an American company, you're French, and you're buying Chinese stock. It's it's a wonderful world. It's just unbelievable what's out there. And you just got to get out and enjoy it. 
Right. That's where the global perspective and the travel also important. Uh, yeah. And I am proud that so many Gustavus students are. And that we have affordable opportunities too, including yours. I mean, to to travel. Um, yeah. The other thing, you know, I don't want to I don't want to end uh, without you saying a little bit about your uh, work for Project. Uh, for Pride and Living. Not everyone listening knows about that organization. It's important. Uh, my wife volunteers at the House of Charity here in Minneapolis, yeah. the food shelf. But tell us a little bit about that organization, if you would, and what, what got you involved in it. Well, uh, I got involved with uh, a good friend of mine was involved, and he said, this might be something that you might be interested. Uh, our headquarters is down on 28th or 29th Lake Street in Chicago. I mean, it's right down 14th in Chicago, 14th and Lake. And it helps the social economic people that need some help. Uh, we do housing, we do vocational training, uh, we do development, and we run educational programs where we can teach a vocation. And uh, it's been going on, boy, I bet you for 30 years or so, Project Pride and Living. And what we're trying to do is work on this self-esteem <laughs> issue. Right. Uh, this self-esteem issue in some of the lower socioeconomic classes is very difficult. Uh, they have a very difficult time how to build self-esteem. And that comes through education and trying yes. to educate. Uh, so they feel good about themselves. And so it's been a wonderful part of my life to be involved with it. Uh, one of my partners, uh, Lee Niebuhr, is, I think, the treasurer of the PPL right now. And that's another thing that at our firm, um, we want people involved. Uh, there's work, and then there's home, and then there's giving back. And, that's right. Uh, you have to do all three. So we give people a lot of leeway on the work structure for both home and for community. And we want our people to be well-rounded. Uh, in my mind, there's a huge separation between home and work. Uh, my home has always been my sanctuary from work. It isn't today, but yeah, exactly. I can't wait to get back to it. <laughs> But this separation of uh, work and family is very important. And I don't think a lot of people uh, spend enough time on thinking about that. Yeah, I, boy, again, that's, I, now I want to ask you just one more question if you have time. But just, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, I can't wait to get back to my office either. I can't wait. Um, but, you know, there's all this talk about, um, you know, predictions, and that's all they are at this point. But, you know, more and more people will be working at home even once the pandemic ends. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't want to work at home. I want to get out of my house <laughs> and separate I, work and home. I think that it's overblown. I know all 14 of us can't wait to get back together. Uh, the cultural aspect of a company or a corporation is so important. And the culture comes from hiring the right people and being together and respecting each other and respecting each other's view. And also that includes disagreeing, but you do it, you know, admirably and uh, you learn from each other. And I don't think that's occurring right now. 
That's yeah, true. I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it can occur to some extent, I guess, online, but it's, it's definitely not the same. I miss, that's yeah. what I miss the most. I miss the, just the casual conversations, you know, over coffee and in person. Um, yeah. Well, going we shall to lunch. see. You know, going yeah. to lunch with, you know, exactly, you know, right. Yeah, that's simple right. Things. Yeah, simple things. And I, and I agree with you. I, th- I think it's overblown as, as I think the predictions about the sort of decline of cities uh, are overblown as well. I agree. Um, yeah, I'd like, Charlie, to leave, I'd like to leave you with one last thing. Yeah, you know, please. When we hire people, we always hire the person first. We can always teach technical skills. But I cannot change what your parents gave you. That's permanently ingrained in who you are. And uh, that's the hardest part about interviewing is finding out who the person is. Right. And you're, uh, boy, that's a great place to end because, you know, again, it comes back to our message about, yes, majors, majors are important, but, you know, it's, they're, they're not, you don't need, what you major in doesn't decide the rest of your life, right? Correct. Far more important is what kind of person are you, what kind of person are you, you know, because of your parents, your experiences and your education, whether it's at Gustavus or any other school, um, I think is so important. And it's great, you know, when students hear you say it as opposed to their professors say it, uh, it makes a big a big difference. So, Charlie, this has been an absolute pleasure. We have not yet met in person. Um, I hope we can do that. I know we will be able to do that. Uh, I look forward to that very much. Thank you and Emily for your generosity, for all that you do for Gustavus uh, and for PPL here in, in Minneapolis. And uh, Let's, yeah, here's to getting back to our respective offices as soon as we can. Take good care. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Bye bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.